we should pray. Father, in your kindness, pry open our hands that we have been clenching all week long around things um, that matter more to us but should matter less. uh, Open up our hands and our hearts and even our minds to see, think, believe, love rightly this morning. You are Father and your Son and the Spirit sent for our good. Give us ears to hear now, we pray. Amen. There is a way of speaking, manners of communicating, um, that communicate with great clarity that you are royally ticked off and best not be messed with. Body language, facial expression, tone of voice, gestures, all of these can be used to let people know that here is the line, it has been drawn, you best not cross it, or if you do it, is it your own peril. Parents are expert in communicating this way to their children. Here is the line, cross it, and you die, basically. One of the ways that we do that is by the use of rapid-fire rhetorical questions. For instance, you really want to talk to your mom that way? You want to do that right here where I can hear you? Are you really interested in going that route? You want to go down that road? You really want to. We can do this your way or we can do this my way. Which do you really want it to be? You need to think this through again and back that truck up and try again. You want to start over? You want to just take this back and do it again? Okay, now I have never done this, but I've heard (laughs) parents do this with their children, hence my ability to speak in this way. Um, It's interesting, this is, is, open up your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 9, exactly what Paul's doing with the church in Corinth. Not one, not two, 16 back-to-back-to-back rhetorical questions to the church in Corinth. He is blistering the church with questions. Let me just read the lion's share of it for you so you get a sense for what Paul's doing here. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard, does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock, does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? 
Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Paul is blistering the backside of the church with questions, one after another after another. He is aggravated with them. He is distressed with them. And what I'd like to do is just walk through this kind of bit by bit and see if we can get a sense for why Paul is so troubled with them and what it is that he's so troubled in particular about. Let's walk back through it. In verses 1 and 2, Paul starts this way. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Thank you, Steve. Um, His uh, assertion here, right off the box, Paul's going to say three things today, mainly. The first one is this. Yes, I am an apostle. Have you forgotten that, church? And he cites a couple of reasons for that. One is, he saw the resurrected Christ. That was one of the criterion of the first apostles. They saw the Lord. And Paul, in this radical, blinding, literally blinding Damascus Road encounter with the risen Christ, he saw Christ. He's qualified to be an apostle of the church. Plus, he planted the church at Corinth as an apostle. They are the seal of his apostleship. If anybody acknowledges his apostleship, it ought to be them, um, the church in Corinth. So that's the first issue that Paul's dealing with with these questions that have him so aggravated. There are some in Corinth who were either saying, he's no apostle, or they were saying, he's a sorry apostle. Paul is vigorously reasserting his legitimacy and credibility as an apostle right out of the blocks. Now, the second thing he does is he defends the right of an apostle essentially to get paid from those he serves. And he wears this out throughout the passage. Look at the next couple verses. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me, Paul says. Don't we have the right to food and drink? We have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas, or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Evidently, some were judging Paul as a sorry apostle, if one at all, for a variety of reasons. They've been trotting them out throughout 1 Corinthians. We've been picking up. He didn't talk like an apostle. He wasn't eloquent. He didn't act like an apostle. Sometimes the guy ate meat with idols or that were sacrificed to idols and stuff. Um, And now he does not command the salary that a real apostle surely would have commanded. The guy's just a volunteer. He ain't no apostle is what they were saying, basically. And Paul here is vigorously defending the legitimacy of an apostle to have the right to be supported by the church. They have the right to food and drink, he says. They have the right to bring along a believing wife for their family to be supported in the ministry that they do. It's interesting that he says a believing wife, and again, this is Paul's boundary for marriage. He'll say it on multiple occasions. Believers ought not marry unbelievers. 
Bring along a believing wife, that he says. Now, this requirement of a believing wife also makes anybody who requires singleness for priests or others, this is a challenge for them. This is not consistent with that. Of course, we would say that Paul's singleness is not consistent with a challenge that requires all pastors to be married as well. We might give that some thought. But Paul says, hey, look, is it just me and Barnabas that have been singled out? Barnabas is one of his traveling companions, and we don't get this benefit? Now, Paul, the way he says it in that last phrase there in verse 6, is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Point of clarification. Paul is not saying that pastoring is not work. Okay? He is not saying that. I am emphatic about this subject. Sometimes people will, I hope jokingly, ask you, so, uh, so what do you do the rest of the week? You only work an hour on Sunday morning, right? I work. Trust me. Pastors work. They did a... Uh, did a survey, they found that 65% of Protestant pastors, their baseline work week is 50 hours a week. That's my baseline week. Nobody gets married, dies, has any kind of crisis, I work a 50-hour week. If anybody gets married, dies, or has a crisis, then there's more than that involved in a typical week, and I'm, I'm not out of line with the rest of our staff in that matter. So we work. Our staff, I know, um, work very hard. They are not lazy. They are truly workers who are worthy of their wages, and I can vouch for them without hesitation on that matter. So Paul says, those who preach the word have rightful claim to provision for them and their families, and he wants the Corinthians to get this. So he is wearing them out on it. He keeps going. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard, doesn't eat of its grapes. Who tends a flock, doesn't drink of its milk. He's just saying this is good, common sense business practice. You don't send a soldier out and say, look, you got a gun, shoot whatever you need to eat. No, you fully equip the soldier to go out and do his job. Um, A shepherd gets the benefit of the flock. The one who tends a vineyard gets the benefit of the grape. Um, It's like a, uh, you might think of it as an employee stock option. It just makes sense that they should benefit from the profitability of the company. It says in in verses 8 through 10, then, he invokes the Scripture. He says, um, this is not just a human point of view. Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it's written in the law of Moses. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this is written for us. Because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. So he cites the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. God isn't just concerned about oxen in this teaching. He's teaching us as well. It has application for us as well. And then in the closing verses of this part, in verse 11 and 12, he says, If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? So they were extending this right to some. Paul says, if anybody deserves it, since I planted the church, since I led you to Christ, surely I have this uh, right as well. Skip down to verse 13 and 14 with me. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? Those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. The the priests of the temple benefited from what was brought to the temple. They ate of the sacrifices. Both Jewish and pagan temples did this. He says, in the same way, 
and this is his concluding argument, this settles the matter for Paul, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And he's citing Jesus' teaching over in Luke, where Jesus says to his disciples when he sends them out, stay in a house, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Case closed, Paul says. Worker deserves his wages. It is right, Paul is saying, for an apostle to reap a material benefit from those he teaches and serves. And by by virtue of the fact that he marshals so many broad arguments, this does have application to us today in terms of our pastoral staff. The breadth of Paul's arguments assure that. And so it's good for us to take a minute to think about how we pay our pastors. And wisdom would tell us, on the one hand, you don't want to overpay your pastors. It's not good for them to be paid too much. For instance, um, there's one pastor who has earned more than a million dollars a year since 1999 in salary and deferred compensation from his TV network. In the city he is in, he is the highest paid nonprofit executive in that city. His pay is nearly twice that of the next best paid executive. That's not good for your pastor's soul. So I have, I have turned down the million-dollar offers from the elders. <laughs> Every year they come to me. I'm like, no, guys, no, it's just in, in right. And the, and the TV ministry hasn't been doing real well lately, so... Um, the other error is underpaying your pastors. And the, the thinking goes like this. If you keep him poor, he'll learn how to trust God better. Uh, no, that's not a good... That just introduces a whole other set of temptations. So we don't want to go there. Perhaps advice from D.A. Carson. He says the church really doesn't pay its ministers. Rather, it provides them resources so they are able to serve freely. They are paid enough to be free to do what God is calling them to do. And I think that's a good way to think about it. And I really affirm North Wake in this. Our staff are not a million-dollar-a-year people, but we are, our needs are met, and we are free to serve as God has called us to. And I know I speak for all of our staff when I say we are deeply thankful for that privilege. So what Paul has done so far is he has defended his apostleship, And he has vigorously defended the right of an apostle essentially to be paid for his work by those he serves. Now he does something unexpected in a sense as you're reading this. After working that hard to establish that it's okay to be paid, in fact, an apostle should be paid, Paul says, I'm not interested in being paid. Look in verse 12. He says, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So for 18 months, Paul's in Corinth. He doesn't collect a dime from salary from the church that he starts. Nothing. He says in verse 15, I have not used any of these rights. I am not writing this in the hope that you do such things for me. He's not writing to get back on the church salary. He is saying, I would rather die than be on the church salary. That's pretty strong language. 
I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast, his boast being that he is offering his service uh, freely. Paul, in the strongest of terms imaginable, declines his absolute right as an apostle to be paid by the church in Corinth. He said, I'd rather die than take your money. What's up with that? Why such strong, adamant declining of his right? What's a right? He just defended it for umpteen verses. Why is Paul saying this? It's a great sacrifice for him. He ends up working two jobs, um, one of which is tent making. We know that from Acts chapter 18, where Paul left Athens, goes to Corinth. He meets a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them in Corinth, and because Paul was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So during the day, Paul is working as a tent maker. At night, he's volunteering as a church planner in a very difficult city. Uh, Tent making was not a particularly esteemed vocation. According to one historian, it was a trade lightly esteemed and poorly paid. Paul took that job voluntarily. He could have not worked. He could have been a full-time pastoral staff member at First Baptist Corinth. He decided not to. Why? Why would you give up your salary? Why would you work all day in the hot sun making tents in Corinth for low pay? Um, Paul um, is eager to do that. Look in verse 12 at what he says. He says, we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything, and here's his reason, rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I will make whatever sacrifice is needed so that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is not hindered by my example. He says, I'll put up with anything rather than hinder the progress of the gospel. I'll work two jobs. I'll take no pay. And this, as you read about Paul's life, it's just the tip of the iceberg of the suffering he would endure to make sure that the gospel expands to everyone. Listen to this list of things from Paul's life in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged, more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. When Paul says he will put up with anything so as not to hinder the gospel... He really means anything. He means anything. It's helpful for us at this point in time to back up and think about 
what does Paul mean when he says, I don't want to hinder the gospel? Because the gospel is a phrase that's almost tossed about uh, meaninglessly for us today. It, it, uh, it's almost become a technical definition, some kind of uh, abstract truth. Um, so let's think a minute about what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. It's what the word means. It's the good news of the love of God poured out on the cross in the death and then the resurrection of Jesus for our sins to bring us to God. I, I love Peter's summary of it in 1 Peter 3. He says, Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That's the gospel. I love the title of John Piper's book, God is the Gospel. God is the good news. The God who loves you. The God who sent his son to die for you when you were still a sinner, still messed up, unable to make things right on your own. That's the gospel. That God, he's the good news. Tim Keller, I love his definition. It's not a technical one, but it's an appropriate one. He says, you are more sinful than you ever dared believe. You are more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the gospel. Paul would rather die than have someone rob him of the privilege of offering this gospel freely. Why? Why did this matter so much to Paul? I think, on the one hand, it's because Paul understood the depths of his own sin. Paul's job, before he became an apostle, was essentially to track down Christians, drag them to prison and oversee their execution by stoning. That's what Paul did. And so when Paul thinks about who he was when he was graciously rescued by the love of God in Christ on that Damascus road, he thinks back, and this is what he said. Here's a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the worst. When Paul thought about his own history, he thought, I am the worst of sinners. He got the enormity of his own sin before a holy God. He didn't explain it away. He didn't justify it. He didn't minimize it. He owned it. He was, as the older versions of the Bible put it, the chief of sinners in his own estimation. He understood the enormity of his own sin. And as a result of that, he grasped the depth of the love of God that would love somebody like him. Somebody as totally undeserving as he was. And he wrote eloquently about it. I mean, Paul wrote beautifully about the, the love of God. Here it is from Romans 8. Paul is writing, who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Those things should all sound familiar. They're what Paul says he went through. As it's written, he says, for, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul got the inseparability, the unbreakability, the permanence, the radical nature of the love of God for the likes of him and the likes of us. He got it. And he prayed that we would get it. Here's his prayer from Ephesians. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So Paul because he understood his sin and the love of God that freed him from it. Paul says, I'll put up with anything, anything to make sure that everybody hears this message, that nobody has to live like I lived without this hope. Does the gospel matter like that? to you. Would you put up with any hardship, with any inconvenience to make sure the gospel is not hindered, that it flows through you to other people? You know, sadly, for many of us, I could change the way those words read with a different meaning. Will you put up with any hardship? Will you put up with any inconvenience at all? Will you make any sacrifice for the gospel? Haven't seen it. Will you? Do you get it enough to make any sacrifice? What about financially? Paul gave up his salary and took on a day job just to make sure nobody could accuse him of being in it for the money. Nobody could have him under, the, under their thumb and dictate how he would share the gospel or if he would share the gospel. I, I'm reminded of a story I heard about uh, Bill Hybels, who's a pastor in Chicago. And early in the life of their church, he had a big donor, potential big donor, sit across the table for him and slide a six-figure check, a six-figure check across the table to him on uh, and say, I want your church to have this, but, and he attached a condition to that six-figure check. And Bill Hybels, to his credit, took that check and slid it back across the table, and he said, sir, I'm sorry, our church cannot afford your gift. What will you say no to? What sacrifice will you take on financially in order that the gospel might not be hindered by the way you handle the resources that God wants to pour through you? Would you endure hardship financially to make sure the gospel goes forth? Will you give up bigger and better and newer and shinier for the gospel to go out to all peoples, to your neighbors? Stuff that you have earned, that you have every right to have, will you give it up? Would you give it up if it mattered to the gospel? Has the death of Christ on your behalf gripped you like it did Paul? How can it? How can we Love the God who is the God of the gospel like Paul does. 
I think one of the ways we do that is by thinking deeply about it. Not just letting it rush past us. Oh, yeah, that's the gospel. There it goes. But thinking deeply about it. Thinking deeply about our own sin. Like Paul. Not comparatively. We like to compare and say, you know, my sin's uh, troubling, but hey, not as bad as his. (laughs) So I'm probably okay. Don't think comparatively about your sin. Let me me see if I can illustrate for you how, how to do that. Let's say, for instance, that this is your sin. It's big and blue, and it says surf club on it. I don't know why, but you know why, because it's your sin, okay? This is your sin, okay? And this is my sin. Now, the difference, the main difference between my sin and your sin is that mine is smaller because I'm the pastor, of course, (laughs) right? Duh, mine's smaller. So if I'm just comparing basketballs to beach balls, your sin's way worse than mine. But that's not how we're supposed to look at it. It's not how Paul looks at his sin. It wasn't that he was the worst guy on the planet. But see, when you are so focused on your sin, you can't even see anybody else's sin when you're focused on yours. I can't even see your sin when I'm thinking about mine rightly. I don't care about your sin. I care about my sin. The only reason I'm interested in your sin at all is if I can help you be free from it. That's all I care about, your sin. Jesus helps us with this. This is very wise. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank like four by four that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Mine's a plank. Yours is a speck. Jesus tells us that's how we're to think about the tragedy of our own sin. We must not minimize or justify or excuse or compare our sins. We must own them and turn from them and love God for a grace that's sufficient even for our plank. Then we can join Paul in saying, we're the worst of sinners. As far as I'm concerned, I'm the worst of sinners. So we think deeply about our sin. We also think deeply about Jesus' suffering and sacrifice for us. The gospel accounts, you read the last few pages of every one of the four gospels, they're compelling. There are those ridiculous trials. They strip him of his robes. They mock him. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on him. He carries his own cross. And then there are those nails. But Isaiah says it's more than that. Just listen to Isaiah 53, portions of it. He writes of the Messiah, and he says he he was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to, our, to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He, let, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. And then Isaiah says this. He says, after the suffering of his soul, And then he goes on. The great suffering of Christ was not the crown of thorns. It was not the cross. It was the suffering of his soul. It was the fact that he had to bear your sin and mine and that ripped him apart from his father. It was the suffering of his soul that Isaiah draws out for us that was the greatest suffering. The bearing of our sin. The separation from the father that exceeded even the physical horror of the crucifixion. We think deeply about his suffering, and we think deeply about the love of God that compelled him to do that. You read Romans 8, and you read 1 John 4, where it says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin, a sacrifice on a cross for us. Such is the love of God for us. And we think deeply about what he's purchased for us. He's rescued you from the reign of sin. He has delivered you from the wrath of God. You'll never face the wrath of God. He has rescued you from a Christless eternity. He has forgiven every one of your sins. He's declared you just and righteous, and he's adopted you as his own child. Tim Keller says, being adopted means the intimacy of relationship, an unconditional relationship You become wealthy because everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished is transferred to you. You become beautiful and spiritually rich in him. Our adoption means we are loved like Christ is loved because he's adopted us. See, to be gripped with, like Paul with the wonder of the gospel, we first have to grasp the enormity of our sin against a holy God that is insurmountable for us to overcome. And then we have to deeply revel in the fact that God so loved us that he gave his son to bear the penalty of our sin so that we can know God and all the wondrous privileges that follow after that. Paul will endure anything, anything, so as not to hinder these great joys coming to others, so as not to rob God of the glory of the gospel. Will you? Will you endure anything 
so that the gospel won't be hindered by the life that you live. Paul has another motivation. It's closely related. This is how our passage closes for today. Paul says, when I preach the gospel, I can't boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. So what then is my reward? Just this. In preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. See, Paul had this undeniable calling placed on his life back on that Damascus road when he was blinded. It was given to Ananias. This is Paul's commission. The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man Paul is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. That is Paul's non-negotiable calling from God. It is his life. It's not anything voluntary. Paul has been conscripted by God to do this task. So what does Paul, um, what does Paul get to do freely? What can he do as a voluntary offering to God? Well, for Paul, it is to offer this without taking any compensation for it at Corinth. If he took money, it could have negatively affected the gospel. So Paul loves doing this. It's it's his voluntary act of worship to God um, that protects and propels the gospel. He freely gives it. Did you ever have the experience of giving something of value to somebody and just saying, no, no, I don't want anything for it. You just take it. It's yours. Have you ever done that? It's a blast. It's like better than the best deal you could get on Craigslist. It's a blast. I mean, just giving it away, just saying, you know, no, it's worth something, but just give it away. And now, I am a recovering cheapskate. So for me, it's like, I get joy out of watching the guy pick up our trash. Hey, it's free. Just take it. You know, it's all yours. Some in the office, when they want to borrow a post-it note, hey, just keep it. You know, don't worry about paying me back. I mean, that's the level I function at. But some of you are really generous people. And you give stuff away. I know people in this congregation who've given cars away. And it's a blast. And they love it. They don't have to do it. It's within their rights not to do it. But they love doing it just for the pleasure of God in doing it. And Paul's saying, I love Working in tents in the hot Corinthian sun all day because it enables me to offer the gospel freely. I'd rather die than be on your church payroll. I just love giving it away. Paul gets that rush from protecting the gospel. He did not begrudge the tents he made in that hot Corinthian sun. He was glad for it. It increased his reward. It protected the gospel. And that's what mattered to Paul. This is our application from this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what I want you to do. I want you to think. And I want you to think deeply about one of these three questions. One of these three questions that's about to come to you is for you. The first one is this. Do you believe the gospel, the good news 
of the love of God poured out for you in the work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. Do you believe that? I mean, do you really pin your life on it, hope in it, believe that, and believe that it's true for you? That's the most important question. Do you believe that? And some of you today, you need to believe that. God's prompting you to believe that it's not too good to be true. That as Paul himself said, this is, a tr- this is a statement worthy of our trust. Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That's us. Second question about the gospel. Do you get it? You may believe it. Do you get it? Are you in awe of the beauty and the power of the gospel? Really? When you think about it, when you really slow down and think about it, sometimes when you sing about it, does it take your breath away? Does it bring tears to your eyes? Does it make you want to lift your hands up and sing at the top of your lungs because it's true? That at your worst, God loved you with his best? Do you get that? If not, is God calling you today to repent of trivializing his love for you? Of being disinterested or apathetic or, or just belittling it, just minimalizing it, just ho-humming it? Will you carefully, reflectively meditate on it? Will you take a long walk and thank God for it? Would you read a book about it so that you can cover the wonder of the love of God and the gospel, the good news of Christ? Third question. Will you gladly sacrifice for the gospel? What would you sacrifice? What wouldn't you sacrifice? Is there something in your heart that's a hindrance to the gospel? Would you be willing to lay that down, to give up that right? Is there something today that God is prompting you to sacrifice, time or resources or something like that for the gospel? Let's think together on these things. Okay, let's pray. Father, forgive us for being so forgetful, so apathetic, so ho-hum when you put our lives up against Paul's who would do anything so that his neighbors and the nations would not be hindered from hearing this amazing good news of the love of God and the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. God, have mercy on us and help us think well. We pray in Christ's name.